I just remember, if you ever come to a class and you don't hear that, um, let me know. So good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming. I'm sure you checked out the email and you saw the three basic questions. They are, and I'm not going to say them in order, but number one, what's the story with a, and I think I wrote gold snake, but what's the story with a copper snake? Why would it be that a copper snake would save the people in the plague? We'll explain that story in a moment. Question number two, how to deal with bad situations. Question number three, how to, why are our prayers so long and were they always this long? And the answer to all three questions, uh, there will be one answer to all three questions, which is really fascinating. And that is really the idea of Jewish mysticism. And so you see the beauty of Jewish mysticism. How can Jewish mysticism answer three totally separate questions with one answer? Because when you get to the heart of the issue in their source, the answer to all three are the same. In other words, um, you know, like doctors, you can deal with di different system. Uh, you can deal with different symptoms. You have a headache and you have a toe ache and you have a, a, you know, a skin is itching and you can deal with each symptom and give a cream to each one, or you can get to the bottom of it and uh, heal the entire idea, go to the source of it. I actually saw this great joke talking about doctors. Uh, what's the difference between a internist, like a primary doctor and a specialist? And I forget the answer, but I think it was something like this, that a, that a primary doctor, that, that a, that a primary doctor treats, um, was something like a specialist. Uh, I'm going to mess it up, but the basic idea was that a, basically a specialist will always see in you that, what he knows and a, and a primary doctor will just treat you with what you have. Something like something to that extent. I have to find a good line, but that wasn't my joke for tonight. Although it is, it is a real thing. Good evening, Samantha. Good to see you. Although that's not Samantha, but yes, uh, Cindy. Uh, that Tipora. sounds like your joke, though. Uh, it was okay. It was a good joke, but I, you know, I messed it up. I'm gonna have to look it up because that wasn't my real joke for tonight. The real joke for tonight was you have a doctor, a psychiatrist, and a insurance HMO specialist head to heaven. So the doctor, psychiatrist, HMO specialist head to heaven. And uh, the doctor comes to the heavenly court and says, you know, I saved lots of lives. I think I deserve heaven. And the angel looks up his record, say, yes, you saved lots of lives. He who saves life as if saved the whole world, you go to heaven. Psychiatrist comes and says, I allowed people to live in a more peaceful way, a nicer way, calmer way. And the angels look it up. Yes, indeed, you go straight to heaven. Then the HMO specialist comes and says, I allowed people to live with affordable, affordable medical care. And uh, the angel looks at him and says, all right, you get to go to heaven, but after three days, you're out and you're going to hell. Okay. <laughs> so. Well, I thought maybe you needed to get a pre-authorization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could do it either way. Exactly, exactly. You could pull it off either way. That's uh, unfortunately the story. Anyways, um, I mentioned that because we're going to talk about doctors tonight, of course. Um, as I said, you know, part of the story is related to the caduceus. So let us first jump right in to the text. Let's first jump into the text of the Torah. Okay, so in the Torah, we have a story. We're going to be basing ourselves off a story that happens in this week's Torah portion. This is in the fifth reading, and I hope you are seeing the screen of the Torah reading, right? Yes, okay. So what goes on here, you know, this Torah reading is fascinating in that it spans, it's not on those papers. This, this text will only be in the screen. The rest will be in the papers, yeah. That this story will span this Torah portion is fascinating in that it spans 39 years. We go from in the beginning of the parsha, the commandments of the red heifer, that's 
in the first year of their exodus, uh, about a year later when they made the tabernacle. And then we now we speed up to Aaron's death. So you have over here, uh, text number 24, God is commanding Moses, Aaron shall be gathered to his people for he shall not come to the land which I've given to the children of Israel because you have defiled my word at the waters of dispute. So we have the story of the waters of dispute over here and Aaron, Aaron dying. Now this uh, is important to the continuation of the story because our sages say that in the merit of Aaron in the desert, they had the clouds of glory. The clouds of glory that protected them was due to Aaron the high priest, okay? So Aaron passes away and you have the details of that. And it says, after they passed away, the Canaanites of Arad came and attacked the Israelites and they waged war against Israel. And the commentary say, what's the connection between the war and Aaron's death? It says, because when Aaron died, the clouds of glory left. And so now the enemies realized they had the opportunity to attack them. During this attack, the Jewish people retreated seven travels backwards. They've been traveling for 40 years. Uh, they had traveled many, many travels, and now they went seven travels backwards. And then, of course, after being attacked, then comes the weirdest part. Okay, the Jews win in the end. Um, and here's where we get to um, the Jewish people after traveling. So you have over here in, in um, uh, verse number four. They journeyed from Mount Hor, by the way of the Red Sea, to circle the land of Edom, and the people became disheartened because of the way. So the people were getting sick of the long journey. Now, what do you do when you have kids in your car? Anybody took a long road trip with your kids? What do your kids start to do when they start to get tired? They start to complain, right? They start to complain. Everything bothers them. Eh, he's, he's looking at me. He's taking my food, whatever, you know, the, the kids start to complain. So the Jewish people were no different. They start to complain. And what are they complaining about? At, uh, verse number five, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this desert? For there is no bread and no water. We are disgusted with this rotten bread. So here the Jews are complaining about the manna. There was a heavenly bread that would fall from heaven. And they were complaining that they didn't like the bread. Now, mind you, it's kind of odd, say the commentaries that they're complaining only 39 years later. When you think about it, they've been eating this bread for 39 years. Well, if you don't like it, you know, speak up in year number one, year number two, year number three. Why 39 years later? So the commentaries say, you know, generally when you're in a bad mood, you suddenly start to complain. That's that's one explanation given. You know, they, they just got attacked or in a bad mood, they're complaining. But of course, God does not like the complaint. And here you have verse number six. The Lord sent against these people the venomous snakes, and they bit the people, and many people of Israel died. All right, so people are dying. Then in verse number seven, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he removed the snakes from us. So Moses prayed on behalf of the people. All right. So again, the Jewish people realized they made a mistake. And now uh, Moses is praying for the people. So God now comes at verse number eight. The Lord said to Moses, make yourself a serpent, put it on a pole. Let whomever is bitten, look at it and live. Okay. Interesting way you know normally when god answers the prayer he says all right i answered your prayers the plague is done right no here's like plague is not done there's one more thing you got to do you got to put a, a snake on a stick on a pole then it says moses made a copper snake put it on a pole and who whenever a snake bit a man he would gaze upon the copper snake and live so it's a very interesting um healing in that god didn't say um, sorry, I missed all the chat because I was looking at the uh, looking at all the screen. Um, oh, oh, somebody said they're HMO specialists. Okay, good. <laughs> um, God didn't 
you know, usually when you, like I said, when God gives a healing, he gives a healing. Here it's like, first of all, the snakes didn't stop. They kept biting. The only difference was now Moses makes this serpent on a stick and miraculously the sna snake bites will, will, will not kill them. It's a very odd thing. Again, remember, the Jews were in the desert. They had the clouds of glory. It says the clouds of glory protected them from snakes. Okay, now God takes away the clouds of glory. Now the snakes can bite them. The snake on a stick is miraculous, and the snake's not killing is also miraculous. Why would God make it that you would have to look at a stick, snake on a stick in order to be healed? Okay? And so that is going to be our in our questions tonight so i'm just going to recap the story so you don't get lost because really we're going to focus on this last part of the story but so you understand what happened in this historic portion so again we're at the end of the journey in the desert aaron dies the clouds of glory disappear the jews start to complain god sends snakes to bite them they ask for forgiveness god says i'll forgive you but in order to get healed we'll need a snake on a stick moses makes the snake on a stick and the people are healed there's a lot of questions about this. Again, I was presenting you one. Why would God need to make such an interesting um, form of healing? But now we're going to get to the text, which will present us with lots and lots of questions. You know what? I don't, don't like the way this... Uh, let's see. Save. Let's see. Let's see. This. I'm just going to... I'm just trying to open this in a proper PDF. Ah. Okay. Well, that's better. Okay. Uh, let me share my screen over here. And uh, let's take a look over here. So we are going to study text from what is called the Kutte Torah. And that is um, from the first Abad Rebbe. And so here, let's read inside. This is like this. And Moshe made a copper snake. And here now you have it in the text in the papers if you want. Moses made a copper snake and he placed it on a banner. The bolded part are the original text. And so it was that if a snake had bitten someone, um, then he would stare at the copper snake and live. It says in the Mishnah, so the Mishnah tries to explain what is the whole idea, why would staring at a snake make people live? That when the people would look up at the top of the banner where the copper snake was, they would also see the heavens and remember Hashem and dedicate their hearts to their father in heaven. So this is the simple answer. Why a snake on a stick? To remind people to look up to God. They started complaining. And so it was put there as a reminder to remind them, hey, God exists. But there's a couple problems with this. Question number one, this is difficult to understand. If so, then why did they need the copper snake at all? If someone were bitten by a snake, you could just look up at Hashem. So the first question is, why do you need anything? Just tell the people, look up. Look up to heaven. And even if you want something, why a snake, right? Put, put, a, put a chumash on the top, right? Put a sitter on a, on a stick, you know? Put a big sitter on a stick, put it up there. And uh, when people are, are bitten, they'll look at the sitter, they'll remember to pray to God. In fact, when you think about it, it's going to go off topic over here. When you think about it, um, a snake, that's like the worst thing for healing. In Judaism, snakes are not, um, let me change the view on this. The snakes are not, um, snakes are not uh, known as the kindest creatures in uh, Judaism. We don't really like snakes, right? Snakes are what caused death. The whole reason we have death today 
there now you can see the reason the whole reason we have death today is because of snakes right um so why would it be that the snake the thing that caused death and snakes are also known in judaism they, they represent the Sahara, evil inclination why would we put a snake to remind you of god snake is a reminder of death snake is a reminder of the evil inclination that came to adam and eve yes i understand in this specific case the snake is biting the people but again the purpose of the snake is not some voodoo it's there to remind them of god a snake is not the best reminder of god that's really question number one in a nutshell someone says i keep seeing isa ata uh did the woman get afflicted um that's a good question i, I don't know so I, I won't be able to answer it okay, it's a good question yes usually women didn't complain did they complain in this case i'm not sure okay question number two Furthermore, what is the idea of staring up to the heavens? Does it not explicitly say regarding prayer that a person's eyes should face downwards to the ground and only in his heart should he be focused upwards to God? Staring down is a sign of humility. People who are egotistical always have their heads up, right? And in fact, uh, there's a prayer we say, from the depths I call you. In many ancient synagogues in Europe, they, you would actually step down to pray was purposeful because you would want to make yourself lower it's supposed to have humility so in a sense what is prayer what in other words he's just asking what who said prayer has to be staring up maybe occasionally you look up but generally prayer is looking down we're not generally looking up when we pray i understand you're in a field you pray like this you know it's the famous thing but actually prayer is typically done um staring down most of our prayers i should say there is a place for staring up but uh, generally it's staring it's looking down all right let's take a look let's take a look at question number three um okay you know question number three will go off topic and, and the reason why it's going to go off topic and so i have to explain that and the reason is as i said earlier we're not trying to just answer this specific question we want to give you a deeper understanding. And to get to the deeper understanding, you turn to a different topic. So when you look in many, many Jewish study, you'll ask a question. And then typically, you know, there's an old saying, right? Why did Jews answer a question with a question? Why not? Right? But it's a real thing. And the reason is the question you see is one specific area. And the way to answer it is really to look at a different area, ask questions on that. And through answering that, you have your original answer. And so that's what um it's going to do over here um so i want to recap what do we have so far we have so far the story of moses and the snake and moses put up a snake on a staff and our questions kind of are why do you need anything to look up to god um you could just look up to god without a snake on a staff b if you want to put anything up there why put a snake put a homage put a sitter put something else uh number c generally prayers looking down why specifically over here um is uh the snake um why specifically over here do we have uh that you're supposed to look up another thing i want to add that wasn't written in that text is when you think about it this can also lead to idolatry you know when you have a physical representation of a snake that is giving people healing could that not lead later on to people serving it as an idol you know imagine you have something that that, that gives 
um, such power of healing would people not serve it as an idol? And this is not just hyperbole. In fact, that is what happened later in the books of the prophets. It actually tells us many, many years later that people started to serve that snake. They held on to that snake. Uh, the Jews, the Jewish people held on to that snake for many, many years. And eventually one king realized that people were serving it as an idol. And that king declared that it should be uh, to, to be ground into uh, dust. And that's in fact what they did. So here we see all these possible terrible outcomes of, of putting a snake. Why would we put a snake uh, up there? Okay, let me just read here. All right, Keturah. Yes, great. That was your thought. Yes, good idea. Um, somebody else wrote here. Uh, a snake because the cure is delivered by the same method as the punishment. Maybe we'll see as we develop this idea. Anybody has any comments or questions or, or could you add any questions? Why would a snake being the healing bother you? Anybody has any thoughts? Um, anybody? Nope. Okay. Don't have to have any questions. It's, just, uh, it's optional. Um, I do want to mention a fascinating story, which really brings out this idea um, that really, um, obviously, the, uh, there's, there's a story of Rabbi Hanina Ben Dosa. Rabbi Hanina Ben Dosa was one of the great sages of the Talmud, and he was once... Uh, he, there's different versions of this actually in the Medrash and Talmud, but I'll, I'll pick the Talmud version. The Talmud version is that he came to an area, and in this area they had, you know, nearby a a, um, a hole of a snake, and every time people would walk by, they would get bitten by the snake and they would die. And so they were they asked Rabbi Hanina. He says, you know, it's it's very dangerous and uh, people can't travel. Um, what can you do to help us and save us? And so he said, show me this uh, snake. Show me where the snake is. And so he came to the hole. He put his foot on the hole of the snake and the snake bit him and the snake died. <laughs> so the rabbi said after this, uh, woe is to a person that meets a snake and woe is to a snake that meets Rabbi Hanina Ben Dosa. Because <laughs> if you're a snake and you bite Rabbi Hanina Ben Dosa, Rabbi Hanina Ben Dosa is going to win. But what was the point of that story? Rabbi Hanina Mendoza then came back to the people and said, it is not the snake that kills, but it is the sin that kills. Not the snake that kills, but it is the sin that kills. The snake is just a conduit for God. And so you see this over here also, is that it was the sin of the Jewish people that caused the snake to be able to kill people. And by looking at the snake up in heaven, the snake was not able to kill them. Just to give you an idea of how the mechanism worked. However, we still have to understand why, why specifically pick a snake? And, uh, you know, we presented all the issues of putting a snake up. You know, why do you need a snake? Just maybe put a sitter there, especially since snakes sign signifies death. So we have all these problems. So now we're going to turn to a different topic. Um, and that topic is going to be right over here. Let me share it on the screen. To understand this, so put the whole snake story out of your mind because we will return to it at the end. But we're going to really put it out of mind. So I really don't want you to get confused. We have all our snake stories. We want to understand why would a snake kill people? We're going to put it out of our mind and we're going to turn to a different topic. And then at the end, we'll circle back. That's a good word. It's not used much anymore. Uh, at the end, we'll circle back to the story of the snake. So he says in question number three, to understand this, we first need to look into the following. What is the purpose of the descent of the soul into this world? Seemingly, the main purpose of a person 
is to connect with a creator with love and fear. And the main connection is experienced through prayer. So again, he's positing, why do our souls come down here is to reconnect to God, right? We came down to this world. When we're in heaven, it's easy to connect to God. The trick is when you're living down in this earth to connect to God, that's not so easy. And so God makes it that we come down to this earth and we have to try and connect to God. And one of the greatest ways of connecting to God is through prayer, because that's when you're actually talking to God. Since the words of prayer, which are describing the greatness of Hashem in a manner understandable to people, making love and fear of him accessible. Now, it is certain that before the soul left the spiritual realm to descend into this world, and also after it leaves the body, it connects to Hashem much more strongly with a deeper level of love and fear of him, since the body doesn't allow the soul to serve Hashem, and actually it does just the opposite because of its coarse nature, it forces the soul to enjoy bodily pleasures, even though the soul doesn't want that, since its source from which it derives this portion of divinity from above and its desires to connect to the creator more than any desire for physical enjoyment. So what he's saying here is your soul before it comes down to this earth and after it leaves had a great connection to God. When it's here on earth, it's being forced by your animal soul to desire sugary, sweet hamantashen. You know, that's what, that's what your body wants, right? Your body wants the sugary, sweet hamantashen. You should come in person next time so you can get those too. Uh, we're on page number six. And so um, the, the soul had a deeper connection with God before it was here. All right. So now comes down to this earth and uh, it doesn't have that great connection to God. So what's the purpose? The purpose is obviously to connect well, to God. Yeah, I'm good. Let's shoot you. Just one second. Let me uh, just meet all. Okay, I hope you all can still hear me, right? Yes, okay. So the soul itself uh, on this earth has trouble connecting to God, but that's what God wants. He wants to make it hard and make it difficult because our journey is, as he says here, explains in the Zohar, our purpose is to transform bitterness into sweetness. As the Zohar says, someone who does not transform bitterness into sweetness has no portion in this world at all. Sorry, just got a notification on my computer about something. Okay. Um, since this process of transforming bitterness is the entire purpose of man, and this is the main reason he's created. And so again, what we're saying so far is why do we come down to this earth is to connect to God. What does it mean to connect to God? Even though naturally our bodies desire uh, the latest movies and the latest phones and the latest cars, and the latest hamantashen. But nevertheless, we're placed down on this earth to connect to God. And through connecting to God, we are turning the bitterness, so to speak, of this world, the darkness of this world, to light. That's our purpose. Now, he wants to continue and say, we cannot say that the only way to turn darkness into light is through prayer, and he's going to prove it. His proof is, we know historically prayers were never this long. If the entire purpose was prayer, then the prayers would have always been long, you know, but prayer is a more recent thing that is very long. So he, he writes like this, since in the time uh, of the first Beis HaMikdash, people weren't required to recite any fixed prayers at all. So here you have the history, okay? Today, we know we have three prayers a day. We know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob prayed three prayers a day, but there wasn't a fixed set of prayers and they definitely weren't as long. In fact, the commentaries say that the original 
commandment of prayer biblically is really just to pray to God when you need something. In other words, when you need something, you must pray to God biblically because that shows that you believe God has the power. In other words, instead of you have a problem, you first try to fix it and you go to work, you first pray to God and then you deal with it. Okay. And then he says like this, even in the times of the second Beit HaMikdash, the second temple, the sages known as the Metagrade Assembly only established a shorter version of prayer, a short version of prayer. If you look in the Talmud, we have the, the, the short version of the prayer. We can be certain that in those times, their main service of Hashem was specifically in this context of transforming bitterness into sweetness. So what he's saying is that Jews from time immemorial have always been taking the darkness of their life and making it into uh, good things. Now he has to explain. So how do we do that? So he's saying it's obviously not just through prayer because prayers used to be shorter. There must be another way that we take the darkness of this world and turn it into light. And his answer is going to be, and this is going to be the crux of the whole class, the answer, how do we take the darkness of this world? Or as I presented in the class, how do you take dark situations in your life? You have to go to the source. You have to go to what is the cause, like I was saying with the doctors. When we can reach the source, then we can turn darkness into light. In other words, you will find that darkness is actually light, that the physicality is actually spiritual, that the difficult times are actually blessings. That's really what he's going to get to. So let's take a look. So this is like this. He says, the idea behind this is that strict, just one second, strict judgments of Hashem as manifest negative things in this world can be sweetened, transformed into revealed good by connecting them to their spiritual source. We're going to have to explain this, but again, he's saying that the way to make bad into good, and here he's talking specifically bad things in your life, is by getting to their spiritual source, and he continues, since all bad things and harsh judgments, heaven forbid, that come into existence in this world are rooted in a source that gives them life, which is good and holy. And I'll read that again. All bad things and harsh judgments, heaven forbid, that come into existence are rooted in a source that gives them life, which is good and holy. So just so you understand where we've gone, so you don't get lost. We first spoke about the snake. We're putting that aside. Then we spoke and we said the main purpose why a person is created is to turn darkness into light, to take the physical and connect to God. That's what it means, darkness into light. You're taking the physicality or desires for hamantash and anything else, or maybe difficulties in your life, and, and, and seeing the godliness in everything. So now he's telling us how do we do that by getting to the source of something. And now he's going to give an example from the Zohar. The Zohar teaches us that when you have a challenge in life, you have to realize that the challenge is not coming from somewhere else, but rather it's coming from God and it's coming from a good place. I want to contrast this. And in, in some other religions, the Satan has its own power. Satan is fighting against God. Satan has his own power, God has his own power, and we're trying to fight Satan, right? Which is probably why they believe in utter, utter damnation. You know, if you, um, I, I'm not a the theologian in this. I don't really know. I'm just presenting what people told me. So if I get it wrong, I got it wrong. It's not really my main point. I'm just contrasting. Um, but in Judaism, we believe that evil really is doing a job for God. So let's take a look. He gives an example. This concept is explained by the analogy of the harlot and the son of the king. So here we have an analogy from the Zohar. The Zohar tells us this analogy. The Zohar says, and you can read it there, the analogy. A king wanted to test the moral strength of his son 
to test him, he hired a harlot to seduce his son. If the son refused to be seduced, then the king planned to bring him into his private chamber and reward him greatly. Now imagine you were in the harlot's position, difficult place to be, right? Now the harlot knew that if she succeeded in seducing the prince, then the king would be devastated. However, she was also hired to test the prince. In her mind, she really wanted to, the son to resist her seduction, even as she was actively trying to seduce him. Since she was hired by the king and was loyal to the king, she would also be devastated if the prince would fail the test. Therefore, her whole inner desires for the prince to withstand the test, even while she is the one charged with administering the test of loyalty. So fascinating description. And one more thing I need to point out. She also cannot be derelict in her duty. She must, she must really try and seduce the prince. Because if she's not, then the king will be upset. You didn't do your duty. You were trying to give him off easy. No, she has to really do her best to try and get the prince to sin. Yet at the same time, she doesn't want the prince to sin because she's working for the king. And she knows what the king really wants is the son should pass the test. In fact, if the son fails... So here she, she, she's kind of stuck on both sides. If she doesn't work to seduce the prince, the king will be angry at her. And if she works really hard and the prince fails, the king will be even more angry at her. So really the ultimate goal of the evil inclination is to test us and really make it difficult for us, but yet it wants us to pass. It wants us to pass. And here we bring a fascinating example from the Talmud. Here he brings a, a fascinating example from the Talmud. Um, the Talmud says, this is the meaning of the teaching of our sages. When Satan and Panina did something negative, their intention was for the sake of heaven. Anybody knows who Panina is in the, in the, in the books of the prophets? Anybody knows? She didn't have a child or something. So, right. Panina, no, Panina had a child oh. and her co-wife. You, what do you, I don't know what you call it. Her co-wife didn't have a child, but good. Yes, you're on the right path. So if you come to synagogue in Rosh Hashanah, we tell the story of a lady called Chana, who had a son called Samuel the prophet. And Chana had no children. And Penina, so back in those days, there was polygamy. So Penina was the other wife, had children. And she used to dig into Penina. Hey, you have no kids. Maybe God doesn't love you. Maybe you're not so righteous as you pretend to be. And so Penina, if you read the books of the prophets, she looks like a horrible person. Look, what a horrible fellow wife. What else to call it? What a horrible fellow wife. You know, what do you just leave her alone? It's bad enough she has no kids. Now you're driving her crazy. But the Thomas says, no, Penina had good intentions. She was trying to get Hannah to feel so heartbroken that she would pray to God, which is eventually what happened. Hannah came to the tabernacle and prayed to God. And then she had a son, the son Samuel. And so here we see an example of someone who's doing something evil, so to speak, but yet has good intentions. They have a good reason why they're doing it. And the same thing it says about Satan when it comes to the book of Job. And I'm not going to get into that example because it's a little more complicated for those. You'd have to know the book of Job. However, um, Here's the difference. And so I'm not going to read this aside because it's, it's complicated. Um, at the end, of, so does this mean that the evil inclination inside of us is good? 
does this mean that Satan is really a great guy himself? Does this mean that Penina, who was doing this evil thing, was, was completely righteous? So here's a fascinating answer. Let's take a look. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the answer inside. Let's take a look at um, some page number 10, if you have the book. So it's like this. The idea is as follows. Bad things are rooted. Bad things are rooted. It, okay, it's a bad translation. Bad, it's a bad translation. Bad things, okay. Bad things are rooted in good and receive their life force from a source that is good and holy. As explained in the Zohar, can there be a spiritual servant who rebels against his master? Even though in the physical world there are many servants who act rebelliously towards their masters, nevertheless, this is only possible with physical human servants whose life force is separated from their masters. However, the spiritual servants of Hashem will feel how they receive their life force from God, which is obviously the case since God gives life to everything. How can something be aware that it receives its life force from God and at the same time rebel against God? In other words, if you are Satan, which is an angel living in heaven, how can you feel God, recognize God, and yet rebel against him? It's not possible because it knows the moment you cut the cord, you're gone, right? You know, like uh, many people say, you know, when they first did something wrong, they were afraid a bolt of lightning was going to attack them, right? And the first time they sinned, they realized no bolt of lightning. But that idea, feeling the immediate retribution, that idea is what, imagine if you really had that. Imagine if you knew that the moment you sin, a bolt of lightning would hit you, we would never sin. So the same idea. Imagine you are an angel in heaven where you literally feel like you're walking around with a plug, okay? Imagine we all walked around with a plug attached to God, okay? And you know, the moment you do something wrong, whoop, you're gone, right? You know that we're, how are you moving? How are you talking? How are you walking? You're getting it from God. In heaven, if you're a heavenly being, you always feel God. That's what heaven is about. In heaven, you feel God. So obviously Satan and the source of evil in heaven is not rebelling against God. However, what he said here is the manifestation of evil within this world. Let's say the snake. Let's say your evil inclination. Maybe you can say Panina. I'm not sure. The manifestation of evil in this world does not feel God. So they are coming from possibly Satan, so to speak. They're, they're a manifestation of it. But within this world, they don't feel God. And therefore, they may feel the total evil, which is why it says when, when Mashiach comes, evil will be eradicated. But in heaven... They all feel like that harlot. In heaven, they all feel like that harlot. They know they're working for God. Down here on earth, um, it may not, you know, they may not feel that, that, that rosy feeling towards God, but in heaven, the source of anything bad feels its source. He says like this. Um, he says like this. Now, even though the source of unholiness is good, when it descends below through chain-like order of spiritual levels, it turns into truly bad things and mercilessly harsh judgments in both material suffering and spiritual sufferings at the hands of the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination. Here he says, so let's read this. So now we have answered the contradiction posed above regarding the question of whether Satan's intentions are holy or unholy. In the ultimate source of Satan and God's desire to test us or to cleanse us, the desire and intention is purely holy and good. Now, the spiritual forces of unholiness are still aware of their source, and therefore they do not rebel against God because they know that the only reason they exist is to carry out God's mission to test or cleanse his people. Therefore, as they exist spiritually, they have holy intentions. However, as this unholiness descends into this world, 
they lose all contact with their source and become totally unaware of a deeper purpose and attention to their desire to harm. They only intend to harm for purely unholy and sadistic reasons. To give you a physical example, let's say in the example of the harlot, let's say she really wanted to test the sun. And so she hired a bunch of other harlots to help her out. Now the other harlots don't know what she's up to. They don't know that she's working for the king. She's not telling them. So she is, so to speak, the source of this whole elaborate scheme to test the king, you know, the sun. And so really even the hired harlots are really all part of the king's test. And the original harlot herself knows that it's all a test and is working for the king. But this, these other ones that are out here not necessarily know that and are doing purely evil intentions trying to seduce the king's son. But in its source, in its source, everything is really good. So all of this was about your evil inclination, so to speak. And we're going to say the same thing really applies in anything evil within this world. Let me just turn down the AC because it's a little bit. Since I fixed the uh, thermostat, okay. Oh. Okay. maybe I'm uh, blowing off too much steam over here. All right, so just to recap, in case your heads are spinning, we started speaking about the snakes. Then we started to talk about what is our purpose in this world to take darkness and turn it into light, right? Take our soul was connected to God in heaven. Now it's not. And so we've been discussing how do we turn darkness into light? And so we gave you the answer over here. Realize that the darkness in your life, and here we're, we're not talking about bad things happening yet. We'll talk about it in a moment. But, uh, you know, the, the, the evil inclination within you, the desire for bad, all of those things, those are all there to test you. And in its source, they're good. And so that's an easy way to get over any of these things. When you realize that even that piece of sugar that's asking you to eat it instead of going to shoal, I don't know, whatever, even that movie that's asking you is really working for God. Now, the movie itself doesn't know it because the movie exists in this world, but the source of that movie who's causing it knows that the reason why you're trying to, why you want to watch that movie is all a test for you. In other words, when you look at everything in the world as godly, the good and the bad, the, even when you look at even the temptations in your life, as a test and and they themselves know or at least in their source they know that they really want you to do good then they become less enticing they, they're not it's not a question of do i pick good or bad even the bad is really just trying to me to get to do good okay so there is no bad there's no evil uh it's all 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 godly agents working for god and now he now he takes this and applies it also when you have bad suffering in your life, okay? This is like this. Uh, oh, I'm still sharing the screen, I didn't realize, okay. Now, when a person has suffering, heaven forbid, he should realize that he shouldn't judge the situation superficially to think that it is nothing more than the bad that it appears to be, since in truth, in its source, it is good. So again, he's saying when something bad happens in your life, realize that it's also good just as the evil inclination is not bad by itself it's there to test you bad that happens in your life cannot really be bad how do we know he brings a source he brings a proof from the book of echa it says no bad things come forth from him only absolute good god only is god is good god only gives good so you're going to ask me rabbi come on 
you're telling me everything is good, but <laughs> it's not so good. You can tell me all day it's good, but it's not so good. You know, the stock market is down. The recession is coming. The interest rates are going up. She says like this. No, it is good. It is just that it cannot be perceived since the revealed aspect of this good could not descend into this lowly world and it therefore remained above. This spiritual source of suffering is called its ethereal life force, which is its true life force that derives from heaven. This deeper level connection to Hashem through suffering is referred to as loving God with all your might, right? We say in the Shema, we'll love your Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with, uh, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That means you love God even when things don't look so good. But as the sages say, they are very good. Notice what we're saying is very good are things that are so good that they that we couldn't appreciate them. Think about it like this. Think about little children. Little children many times don't appreciate what's best for them they want lollipops and they want laffy taffies and they want to go to sleep late you have a better purpose in mind you want them to grow up as good people people who follow the right path uh, people who will have teeth when they grow older people who will be able to go to sleep and wake up on time but that good that you have is too large for their brain they cannot appreciate it yet it's too big for them and so when you come down on them in those areas, you don't let them have the lollipop. You don't let them watch TV all night. They suddenly feel um, like you're being mean. They feel like you're being evil. But in truth, the best good that you give them in life is what they perceive as bad. Think about that again. The best good that you give your kids at many points in life is the things they cannot yet appreciate. And the same thing is as about God. The bad things in our life are actually the best things that we cannot yet appreciate. And therefore, they come down in this world in a way that they look bad. And here he, he, quote, he, he shows a, a, a really a, a fascinating text from the Medrash. Look at this Medrash. Our sages commented, Tov, good, is a reference to the angel of life. And Ma'od, very good, is a reference to the angel of death. That sounds pretty crazy. But now they... Now, I'm not saying we all should die, but uh, you know, the angel of death is also the Satan and everything else. So again, there you have a text where good is good. Really good is bad. <laughs> Sounds pretty crazy, right? But um, that's the truth. Let's, let's read further. Meaning that this Yetzirah, who is also the angel of death, is in truth exceedingly good beyond any measure or limit. It is just that this ultimate good didn't come into the revelation in our world and is not perceived. And so the best good is things that we cannot perceive. And I'm going to skip the next paragraph and go to the following. This is also the idea of the tzaddik, Nachamish Gamzu, a man who would say this is also for good. So Nachamish Gamzu was a Talmudic sage. And whenever anything went bad, what happened bad, he would say this is also for the good. And in fact, there's a story, and uh, it's written there in the text, but I'll tell you outside, there's a story that... Um, he was sent to Rome with a treasure chest full of treasure. Repetitious, right? A treasure chest full of treasure to appease the king of Rome or the emperor of Rome. On the way, he stopped off in an inn. Thieves broke into the chest, replaced all the jewels with sand. And uh, so it was. Well, Nachum Gamzu saw the sand 
And he wasn't worried. He said, this is also for the good. Everything that happens is for the good. And so he came to the palace and he presented the king with a treasure chest full of sand. And the king wanted, the emperor wanted to slit his throat. And it says the prophet Elijah appeared in the court as a, one of the ministers of the king. And he said, no, no, the Jews are not being evil. The, the, these Jews, they're very good to you. This sand is ancient sand from Abraham. And if you take this sand and you throw it at your enemies, it'll turn into arrows and it'll kill your enemies. And so the emperor tried it and it worked. And you can imagine that whatever it was that Nachumich Gamzu wanted to accomplish with the emperor, it worked. So what was Nachumich Gamzu's trick, okay? I hate to break it, but if somebody were to swap out my, my, my wallet with real money for monopoly money, I would be none too pleased. And I doubt that my monopoly bunny would get me anywhere. So what was Nachumich Gamzu's trick? How was he so sure that he could always, you know, pull off a miracle to the point where he even knew it was sand before he came to the king and nevertheless, he still continued. And so he says like this. Let me move over here. Mipnei, because he would say this motto, because he would contemplate the fact that in truth, the source of bad thing is good. And in his thoughts, he would elevate those bad things to their source in their holiness to level of called intangible, a spiritual level that is not yet formed and defined. And therefore matters are able to change before they become manifest in our physical world. And there he was able to change things from hidden good to revealed good. So what is he saying here? He's saying here that Nachumish Gamzu was a very holy man and he could look at anything bad in the world and see its source. So again, me and you, when something bad happens into our life, we have faith, okay? We may have faith. We may know that in its source, it's really good. We can't see it. But Nachum Gamzu, he was a very holy man. He could see the goodness that was in it. And because he was able to see the goodness that was in it, he was able to bring that goodness even down into this earth. So anything negative would happen in his life, he would go to the source. Why is there sand coming in here? Oh, let me get to the source. The source of the sand is really something good. And he was able to change it even in this world that the, the, the bad in the world should reflect the greater good. Can you imagine? That's much greater, right? Treasures, the king has a lot of treasures. How much the treasure is going to do to the king? But sand, oh, sand is really good. Sand is really what's going to work. That's the reality. The reality is, again, think about this. For this story of Melchizedek, the reality is that whenever anything bad happens in your life, it's like switching the jewels for sand. Really, because again, it's a greater good. That's what we're saying. Greater good we cannot appreciate. It's really switching those jewels for sand. The only problem is most of us don't usually get the opportunity to see it. Okay? Most of us don't usually get the opportunity to see it. But a person like uh, Rabbi Hanina Bendosa, sorry, a person like Nachomich Gamzu, he was able to see it. And to be honest, as we'll say in a moment, each and every single one of us in our lives, even if we don't always see the good within the bad, the more we appreciate that the bad things that are happening in life is truly a greater good, then the negative aspects disappear because then they may have accomplished their purpose already. So again, the more we can appreciate that even the bad in our life is good, the negative aspects will disappear because we've gotten to the source. We're appreciating what is coming from God and even though maybe we will never or will not always um, get to that level of Nachamish Gamzer where we'll see like, you know, crazy, crazy blessings like that, you know, miraculously, but we can see blessings in our lives. How often have we seen 
bad things turn into good. Not always, but sometimes, right? And so what we're saying here is to realize always when negative situations arise, they're really not negative. They're really like that father that has this great goodness and can't package it to you because your brain is too small. And so it gives it to you in a different way that you don't appreciate it yet. It's not bad. It's, it's just that you don't appreciate it and you perceive it as bad. And now we're going to take a step back. So we spoke about negative situations. And now we're going to explain why prayer has to be longer. And so he's going to say it's a similar idea. We've been explaining till now that anything negative in this world, any negatives that exists here, whether it's a negative situation or even the evil inclination, is really in its source just goodness. Just we don't see it. And it, going back to our discussion earlier, we said our purpose on this earth is to take our evil inclination, take our negativity, and uh, turn it into godliness and goodness. Back in the day, there wasn't as much evil around. In the times of the temple, they did not have as much evil as we have nowadays. And so therefore, he says, they didn't need as much prayer. In fact, he says, just the offerings alone were enough. Let's, let me skip over here a little bit. Let me take a look. This is like this. The more spiritual bad is mixed into the person, the greater and stronger connection to his creator must be during prayer in order to separate and remove that bad. Therefore, in the time of the first base on Mikdash, when there was not so much bad mixed into the people, they did not need as much fiery passion and prayer. Rather, the entire main focus of their service to God was to elevate the bad and harsh judgments to their source and holiness. And this was mainly accomplished through the physical carbonate offerings. And this was sufficient to separate the bad and elevate it to its source. Uh, good evening, Rick. Good to see you. So he's saying is originally people did not need to pray so long. What is the purpose of prayer? The purpose of prayer is to recognize that the evil in your life, the, you know, your evil inclination is really just a part of God. So back in the day, bringing just offerings alone occasionally was enough. The commentaries explain how does bringing an offering connect you to God. First of all, there's the fire, feeling the fiery passion, imagining whatever happens down, what happened to you. There's all different ways. Carbon also means coming close. But you now you can already get... Um, an idea of what's going on. But then he says, then in the times of the second temple, already the Jews had a little bit more evil mixed into them, a little bit more of that evil inclination mixed into them. Now the sages had to institute prayers that we would say daily because you need to spend more time recognizing that the evil within you has a godly source. Again, because through, why does pray again, why does prayer help help you with your struggle with your desires because again prayer allows you to realize that the source of everything is god and when you realize that even your desires are sourced in god and they are just there to test you and really they also work for god that helps dissipate all that passion that's really the idea the animal represents your animal soul and it's getting consumed by the godly fire 
when you pray, you have the same idea. Your animalistic soul is being consumed by the godly fire. What does it mean it's being consumed? Not it's being destroyed. You're realizing that in truth, the animalistic soul within you was really a part of the fire of God. Just when you were full of passion and desire and lust, you weren't feeling God. It was hard. But during prayer, you can bring into yourself the recognition that that passion and desire really is godly. All right, so the more evil people experience, the longer prayers had to be. So the sages had to keep making prayers longer and longer and longer. We start in the first temple, it was just offerings. In the second temple, prayer services got a little bit longer. And uh, he says, however, nowadays, ooh, nowadays, ah, nowadays, where we have Netflix, we have uh, iPhones, we have, nowadays, we need to be involved in prayer with much, much more passion in the time to the second day to make this. Since the lower the spiritual level of the generation, the more intensely passionate has to be their involvement in prayer. So think about it this way. We would think that in previous generations, they were, they were holy, they would pray more. He's actually saying no. In previous generations, in the holier generations, they actually prayed less. You know, when the Baal Shem Tov first started, instituting lengthy prayers he got a lot of pushback the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidic mysticism he got a lot of pushback but here we're getting you the understanding why were the prayers lengthened so much why would people pray so long because the, that that's the generation we're in and if anything nowadays we need to pray longer than they used to pray what was good for our grandparents is not good enough for us in fact there was once I forget the exact story. Someone once came to a private audience with a Rebbe and was asking, you know, why do we have to, you know, be so stringent in this area of Jewish law and that area of Jewish law? You know, for my grandparents was enough, X, Y, and Z. You know, they would, they would maybe pray for a shorter time or uh, they wouldn't be so scrupulous in the commandments, whatever it was. And so the Rebbe pretty much answered him. He says, right, and also for your grandparents, having a one-bedroom house was enough and sleeping on a straw floor was enough and not going on vacation was enough. So don't tell me, oh, I'm just like my grandparents in Judaism, but in my physical life, no, there everything is, oh, there I get a lot more. You know, Be consistent. If you want to be like your grandparents, then maybe your spiritual life can be at the level of your grandparents or great-grandparents. But in a sense, in certain ways, we need to elevate our spiritual game or at least our prayers because of the society that we live in and the day and age that we live in and the pulls that pull us and, and the desires and the lusts that we experience today are much more than they ever experienced. You know, you ever, if you ever go to England, you get to, uh, I once toured one of the castles, that the, you know, the Queens and the Kings lived in and you're looking like their luxury is, is less than a one bedroom apartment here or there, you know, it's like, Oh, look at that fancy toilet, you know, or you know, their, their, their houses had no heating and whatever it was, it was, we live in more luxury than the kings of old. So we have a lot more desires and, and, and lust and feelings and, and passion into, into uh, animalistic things. And so we need to pray more. And so that's why prayers have gotten longer and longer. Um, let me go back to here. Okay. Um, in fact, he says like this. In fact, the trend is that each succeeding generation is not a higher spiritual level than the previous generation. Just the opposite. Each generation is generally lower than the previous. And because of that great increase of bad, it becomes more mixed into people in each succeeding generation. 
We need to continuously intensify the fiery passion and prayer in order to separate that bad and to remove the bad that is inside of us and elevate it to the source and holiness. I just want to take a break for a moment and tell you, don't feel bad that you live in a generation where we have more desires and more lust and more temptation. Because remember what we said earlier, in its source, it's good. So in a way, our greater desires is a sense that we, in a way, are greater than our great-great-grandparents. In a way, God test, is testing us more because we have more grit than they did. We have the ability to overcome these greater than our great-great-grandparents did. Think about it, by the way. Many, great, many of our great-great-grandparents, when they left Russia or Europe and came to America, they dropped much of their Judaism. They dropped very far. You know, we're now, you know, reclaiming it, coming back up. And many of them dropped much of it. Okay. Even if they retained some of it, it was very, very hard. They didn't have that ability that we have today. You know, we are towards the end of the exile. It says that Moses, when the Torah says that Moses is the most humble person upon the earth, I think it's a Medrash that says that Moses was humble before the generation of the Mashiach. He says, why? Not because the generation of Mashiach were going to be smarter. Not because the generation of Mashiach were going to be wiser because they were more studious. No. But he says, because they have the ache of, they have the heel. What does heel mean? Heel is the lowest part of your body, but everything rests on it. It goes to the place that it needs to go. You walk to the places you need to go. We are not wiser than the previous generations. We are not smarter. We are not more learned. But we have something greater that they didn't have. The ability to overcome. The ability to do the ability to connect even when it's very difficult. That's what's so special about us. And so we shouldn't look at us ourselves and say, oh, we have all this evil within us that we're talking about. Remember, those are a greater test for us because we can handle it. God knows we can handle it. And in its source, those tests are really godly to test us and to bring out our inner strength. You have kids today who grow up without any religion and you stop them on the street to put on tefillin and then they, they get involved. The stories that we have of today's generation is just amazing. And we have to look at it in that way. Okay, but I, I, was, uh, I got on my soapbox over here. Um, but again, so he's going back to his point. And this is really the whole point of the class. The whole point of the class, is, if you've noticed, is really when we get to the source of something, then it becomes less of a problem. When we get to the source of evil inclination, we realize it's just that harlot hard by God it becomes less daunting when those bad situations in our life, when we realize that truthfully in their source, they are godly. They're just such a great goodness that we couldn't appreciate it. They become less bad. And, um, and so this is what he says. And so this is, he's recapping over here. So we need to continuously, sorry. Okay. Let me go down. This means that a person should contemplate the fact that there is a life force in the bad and this life force comes from God. Without it, the bad would not be able to live and God gives it life for the reason explained above, namely in order to test the person and bring him to a deeper connection to Hashem. If so, then it is not really bad at all since this Yetzirah exists for his own benefit and it is not truly bad even though it appears to be good. And he says the same too regarding all suffering and all material matters. If a person will reflect on them, the way that was explained above, how their source is good and holy, and for the person's benefit, then all the doers of evil will disperse. All the evil that exists. And he gives the example, like Nachamish Gamzu. Um, so again, when you when you the um, sorry, let me in, in um, there are many things you do. The Kabbalists call it 
lahamtik et hadinim, to sweeten the judgments. What does it mean to sweeten the judgments? Sweetening the judgments means that when you get to the source of something, you find its sweetness. And so he says like this. This is the idea of Nachumich Gamzu, the man who said this is also for the good. And in fact, all the tzaddikim are the same reports towards their suffering. It was just that Nachumich Gamzu was able to alter the reality in this world so that it corresponded to how it was seen from above to below. So it should be actually visible in this world that it is good even on a physical level. And um, he brings he just brings some text. He says, however, all the other tzaddikim, even though in their minds they were thinking about suffering with the same approach as Nachum, the revealed good remained above as it was originally without the good becoming perceptible in the physical world below. In other words, there are many people who are tzaddikim, but they're not always able to affect and alter the reality. So, um, like he gives an example here. He says like, you know, he says most of the time, he writes here, if you look in that third paragraph, most of the time, the result of elevating the hidden good to its source in the revealed good will cause a transformation, but it will come in seemingly natural means. For example, someone who is sick and he thinks about how it is really from Hashem for his benefit, and then by Hashgacha Pratis, individual divine providence, he meets just the right doctor, gives him just the right medicine, and he recovers. Okay, so it wasn't so great that he was sick, but now that he thought about how really the sickness was good, he met the right doctor, and maybe through while he was in the hospital, he elevated other people's lives. Right? There's ways of looking at it in a good way. Or someone who lost his job and is suffering financially. And then after he thinks into how his suffering is to motivate him to do sugar repentance, and it's for his own benefit by Ashkacha Pratis, he happens to find just the job he was looking for. So to each person experiences many of these instances where his realization of the inner purpose of a suffering and the increase in trust and service of Hashem that results from it brings him by divine providence to the revelation of his physical suffering as well. However, usually... The divine providence is clothed in physical means. Other people like Nachum or occasionally regular people experience supernatural, miraculous transformation of their situation by elevating the suffering to its source and holiness. Now you might get, however, the idea of the copper snake reflected the mode of Nachum, a supernatural transformation of hidden good into revealed good. So now we're going to get to the idea. Now we're going to answer our question. Our whole discussion today has been about when you see something bad, go to its source. And when you appreciate in its source, then it's not bad, it's good. And now we can understand the snake. And the snake on a totem pole, we said, if you want to think about God, put a sitter on, the, on, on, on a pole, and then you'll think about God that way. It's not just about thinking about God. It's thinking about the spiritual source of the snake. It's not just remembering God and God will heal you. It's remembering that even the snake that's biting you is really working for God. And that's the idea of putting the snake up on a pole. Putting the snake up on a pole reminds you that this snake that you see here on the ground really comes from a spiritual snake. And that spiritual snake is really good. And if you can realize that the physical snake is really a spiritual snake and a spiritual snake is really good, then all your problems will go away. And so let's read that inside. This is the idea of a snake of copper that Moses had to place on top of a pole. It was needed in order to elevate the snake upwards to its source of holiness so the people would look upwards to Hashem, the source of every. Meaning, so that the people shouldn't think that the snake is something truly separate and independent from God in which it would be truly bad and would always remain bad. In other words, if the healing was not through putting a snake up on a staff, people would say, all right, there's the evil snakes in this earth. And Moses does a miracle and saves us from the snake. No, that wasn't the point. Moses wanted them to realize even the snake is an agent from God. There's nothing bad in this world. Everything in this world is, is, is godly, which means it's good. It was here for a purpose to remind you, don't complain about God. 
However, when a person thinks about the snake in terms of how it can be traced back upwards to its source, where it is not separate from God, and its life force from God at this at that level is like the analogy of the harlot and the princess explained above. Then no bad things descend from above, and therefore the the it was made of copper, which includes the letters nacha snake, since it refers to the spiritual source of snake, the way that it's still included in holiness. This making of the snake into copper causes it snake to change its color, so its appearance is reverting it to the level of its intangible source. Anyways, it's getting sometimes it gets a little mystical, but this is such a powerful and fascinating. This answers all our questions. You know, we we wanted to know why do we make a snake? Don't snakes signify death? Don't snakes signify the evil inclination? And then if you want to think, make people look upwards, put a sitter up there, and why the snake of all things? And wouldn't people worship the snake? And now we have such a beautiful answer. The purpose was not just they should say, "Oh, we sinned, God, please." Uh, forgive us. God wanted to send a message to them. Anytime anything bad happens in your life, whether it be a snake that's biting you, that snake is not a separate. That snake is the good from God. And when you recognize that that snake is really good from God, then your issues will disappear. Just like that snake that Moshe put on the pole. And so the same thing we have to realize, as he said earlier, is the same thing our bad situations in life. Any bad situation we have in our life, think about it like that snake. There's not bad things, and then God can do something else to, to, to maybe make things better. No, that bad thing alone was good. That bad thing alone was God. And when you recognize that, that's when the bad goes away in your life. Same thing applies to our evil inclination. Evil inclination is not evil. When you're tempted by things, by lust, by humantashin, by whatever it is, recognize that they are godly. And that's the way to deal with the issues in your life. It's so easy to say there's bad, there's good, and our whole job is to you know, we always separate the bad from the good. The Jewish worldview is everything is godly. And when we recognize that everything is godly, it makes it so much easier to deal with the bad in our life, whether it's the bad from within, as we spoke about, whether it's the bad from without. Like I said, if you were to walk around all day and, and, and feel that plug connected to you, uh, you, you would be a different person. If you would feel that connection to God all the time, You'd be a different person. That's what prayer is. Prayer is about plugging into God. When we pray and we get consumed by our love for God, then we can feel how everything in our life is just that love of God to us, that godly hug and embrace, that evil inclination is part of God's loving embrace. Those bad situations that are our coworkers, those are our loving embrace from God. And I'll end up with a uh, relevant story. Um, there's uh, we're going to celebrate in Chabad in a couple of days from now the time when the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe was let out of prison by the Soviets. And he actually wrote a diary of everything that happened to him in prison by the Soviets in 1927. He was arrested by them. Fascinating story. And they actually wanted to kill him right away. But he walked in there saying, nobody can put me in jail. I'm, you can bring me to the jail, but I'm here with God. And so he walked into the place. He didn't follow direction. What happened was actually he didn't follow the exact directions. He just sat down and started smoking a pipe or somebody found him <laughs> and brought him into an office. And it turns out because he did that, um, he was actually supposed to be executed right away. And because there was that time period, uh, the Jews in America were actually able to pressure uh, the Russian government and they committed his sentence first, 12 years of hard labor, then three years of hard labor. And eventually they totally commuted it. And they told him, you know, just to leave the country. 
but the book that of his diary is called the prince in prison when you read that story he's like he's in prison but he doesn't give in to, to the guards because he realizes nobody can put you in jail he says you know when when we went into he, he, he's you know he gave a declaration he says um when we went into exile our souls were never put into exile nobody can do anything to the to the godly soul nobody can touch it it's always there so he obviously was a spiritual man and, and could recognize that even the jail cannot stop even such a terrible experience like that couldn't stop what he was trying to do uh but each and every single one of us in our own lives um we have to realize uh really i guess the message of today is prayer the message of today is prayer because prayer is the key to everything that we spoke about today just like in the story of Moses, they, they had to look up at the snake. And as many commentaries said, you know, they would look up and pray to God. But specifically, what does it mean praying to God? Praying to God. And when you pray to God and you connect to God, you realize that everything in your life is godly. And we recognize that everything in life is godly. You recognize the source of everything and everything becomes that less scary. And um, all the bad in your life will turn into good. So may it be God's will that we all connect to God in beautiful ways and um we recognize the source of everything and anything negative in our lives should turn into good behavior if you made a mamish very very speedily name amen so, amen name so i'm gonna stop the recording i'm gonna open up for any questions